Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. All right, the leadoff question this morning where do you live? Where do you live? What's your spontaneous first answer to that question? Are you, are you now rattling off your mailing address? Where do you live? It's possible that your mailing address is different than your physical address. Where do you live? You may feel like you live at work, and so you're thinking, oh, you know, I've got a house, and that's where I sleep, but whew, where do I live? Where do I find my life? Where do I spend my life? Where do you live? Where do you live is one of the questions um, we frequently ask other people, and it's a question we are frequently asked. And so I thought this morning, let's lead off with this. Where do you live? How do you answer that question? Now, the answer to the question depends on the context. Where do you live? Um, If you are outside of the country where you live, you normally just say the country because for people outside of let's say the United States of America, it makes no sense to tell them that I live on Street Road. First of all, it just sounds ridiculous, even to those of you who live in America. So I would just tell them, oh, I'm from the U.S. So it depends on your context. If you're outside of the U.S. and you live in the U.S., then you say you live in the U.S. If you're in the U.S., but you're not in your home state, so let's say you're in Minnesota, but you're from North Dakota, maybe you just tell them you're from North Dakota, or maybe a little further away. So you're in Minnesota, but you're from Florida, so you just tell them Florida or Texas, or California. But the closer to home you get, the more specific your answer. Am I right? I mean, you know, we go from, oh, I'm from the U.S., to I'm from Minnesota, to I'm from Lino Lakes, or Elk River. Mm -hmm. Because those places are not known to people outside of your specific geography. But if you're an event in your home state and people are, let's say, from every county, then that might be how you describe yourself. Well, I'm from a particular county. Oh, well, I'm from this one. And the more specific you get, the city, down to the part of the city or the town, the neighborhood. And then if you know someone from that part of town or from that neighborhood, then you ask, well, do you know Susan? She's the one who lives in the house of the blue door, catty corner from that big white house on the hill, you know, at the curve in the road, just out of town. <laughs> or, hey, do you know Bob? He's the one that runs the co-op, you know, where Main Street turns into County, county Line Road. <laughs> where do you live? How do you talk about where you live? How do people know you by where you live? Nazareth? Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Can people tell where you live by what you say and how you say it? Is there a turn of phrase that sort of gives away where you live? Do the stories that I tell bear witness to the reality that I live in God? that I live in the love of God and that the love of God lives in me in Christ Jesus? 
Can people tell where I dwell? Do my patterns of speech and my actions betray the fact that I live in love and love lives in me? Our Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from 1 John chapter 4. And we're just reading verses 15 and 16, but uh, you would benefit by reading further in today's text. So where in the word are you today? We are in 1 John chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them. And they live in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. And God lives in them. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God. So is that you? All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God. Have God living in them. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the holy habitation of God. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. Where do you live? Where do you live? Where in the Word are you today? Not just where are you in the Bible, but where are you in Christ? All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. And so we know the love of God, we know the love God has for us, and we rely on the love God has for us. Is that you today? Do you know the love God has for you? Are you relying on that love today? God is love. We could just spend the day right there. God is love. The world has a lot of ideas about what love is, and they have no idea who God is, and that's why they're so confused about love. In the world today, many have made a God of love instead of understanding that God is love. Yeah, don't miss that. Many in the world today, I didn't write this down, so maybe you should. Many in the world today are confused about love. They have come to believe that love is God. When in fact, God is love. Whoever lives in love, says John in 1 John 4, whoever lives in love, do you live in love? Have you made love? Have you made God your habitation? Are you living in love? Are you living in the God who is love? Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in them. This is an extraordinary passage of Scripture. So, back to the beginning of the conversation, where do you live? I live in Christ, therefore I live in love. And who then is my neighbor in the kingdom of God? Well, the one also living in Christ, living in the love of God, that'd be you, right? And so together, as we love one another, the world comes to see and experience what it looks like to live where we live what our neighborhood is like, what the kingdom we inhabit is like. So all this month on Faith Radio, we're going to be talking about love. We're going to be talking about the God who is love, the God who sends love, God who commands love, God who gifts love, God who cultivates love, God who harvests love, God who loves you. Revel in the reality this morning that God is love. 
and that God loves you. Next up, a conversation with our friend Dave Buring from Lion Share as we consider and engage the attributes of the character of God. Let's start here. God is great and God is good. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Back with us today is our friend Dave Buring from Lion Share. Hey, we're going to continue talking with Dave about these free devotionals that um, he offers every single day. Uh, in order to access them, you're going to want the Lion Share Leadership app. Um, you can find that at lionshare.org. Dave, welcome back. Hey, how are you today? Oh, I am well. I am well. It is good with my soul. Um, the reality of how we relate to God and then how we see the world and everything in it grows out of our perspective on God, like who we believe God to be, how we see God. So what I, you know, what what sort of my mind or my heart says back to me when I say the word God, like that's really important. So can you talk with us about um, why it's important to see God for who he really is and how we come to know him through these, you know, character attributes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I have found over the years that what oftentimes happens to us as followers of Jesus is we so enjoy and we, we dig into the word of God and God speaks to us through the word. But one of the things I've just noticed in conversations with people over the years is when I say, hey, how's, how's your getting to know God? And then they, you know, they can go off on tangents about, you know, different things. Well, I'm learning how to be an usher in my church and I'm learning how, you know, discover maybe what my gifts are. And it's like, that is awesome. But that's not what I asked you. What I asked you is how are you doing in really getting to know God? Just like a human relationship, you know, the more that you know each other, the more you trust each other. And the thing about this with God is, do we really know him to the point that we can trust him? And I, I, you've heard me say this before, the image of God that we carry around inside of us affects how we live our daily lives. And that image has been, if I could say it this way, aimed at by the enemy of our soul since we were born to try to mess it up and to try to have that image of God be disfigured and distorted. And the, the key to coming back to it is what does, what does the word of God say? What does God say about himself? And I think that's the best place to start. So let's um let's talk about one of these character qualities or attributes of God. What does it mean for us to say God is good? Hmm. So, you know, when I hear that, a couple of scripture verses come to my mind. Psalm 25 says, good and upright is the Lord. I like the one, you know, that I think a lot of us have become familiar with, maybe with a worship song out of Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's like the Lord invites us to see his goodness. And we need to recognize that, you know, God is good to sinners. God is good to those of us that walk with him. Like the, there's this overwhelming sense of like the core, a core part of his character is he is good. He's not yeah. mad. He's not ticked. He's not irritated. He's good. And, you know, the opposite of that maybe in our world would be selfishness. Can I just say God is not selfish? God is not proud. And so, therefore, what flows out of his being is goodness. And when we talk about these different 
character qualities, I, I want us to understand they're not as much like choices. Okay, you can imagine God. Okay, don't really feel like it today, but I guess I just need to be good. My word says, you know, it's not like that. It's an overflow of who he is. So he's that way all the time. So there's the consistency of his goodness to us. What flows out of God is goodness. I think that that takes me back to the childhood uh, mealtime prayer of God is great and God is good. And God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Give us, Lord, this day our daily bread. Like the, the recognition that um, God only gives good gifts. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Like those are some passages that come to my mind. Um Uh, when you when when you say God is good, I'll just confess to you that um, this is what I hear in my head. God is good all the time, and mm-hmm. all the time, God is good. Mm-hmm. So, like, right? That's what yeah. I hear in my head. So when yeah. we talk about when we talk about the goodness of God, not everybody by their lived experience or by the things they've been told about God. Mm-hmm. believe that God is good. I mean, if mm-hmm. if we genuinely believed that God was good all the time, we would we would never doubt or fail to trust him. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I that's why I'm saying I think from the moment that we're born, you know, we enter into a world that has sin and selfishness all over it and then you've got the enemy of our soul, the devil that will do everything he can to twist this concept. And I and I think we have to realize mm. it's it's right from the get-go. And so through our childhood the enemy wants to do everything he can to cause a distaste in our mouth. Yesterday I was speaking at a university, a Christian university campus and we were talking about some of these things and I could tell it was about 63 in the class and I could tell um that a good half of them when we started talking about some of these dynamics they they just by their posture and the way they were looking at me i could tell this was a wrestling point for them because they had had more in their life that had happened that would maybe prove otherwise mm. and for for me it begins with um being grateful for things we assume now this one might sound silly to you but it's one that i think about in the goodness of god is he gave you and me taste buds like <laughs> right it's like mm-hmm. Like, I guess I could have eaten food. I know taste buds are there for the goodness of it, and it's there for the protection of it. So, you, you know, something doesn't kind of feel right or taste right. You know, something's probably wrong. It's poisonous. It's not good. But, like, for the most part, we could just survive by eating food without tasting it. And when I think of the goodness of God, it's one of the places that I go and I go, you gave me taste buds. You gave me eyes. This morning I woke up and I could suck lung into my lung, uh, air into my lungs. I, I can hear. I can touch people. I can, you know, and I, and I sometimes come back to just the five senses that God has given us that I take for granted all the time. And when I just go back to some real basics I begin to find that gratitude bubbles up inside of me and I begin to recognize the goodness of God. For me, Carmen, another point on this is my relationships. Like I am so grateful for the people that God has put in my life and if I trace their stories and ask how did they get here in my life? Sometimes you can't help but just go, I had nothing to do with that. Nothing. God brought them into my life. 
And, and I think when we start thinking of things like that, it begins to cause gratitude to rise up inside as we see the goodness of God to us. That's so good. We're talking with Dave Buring from Lion Share, um, and we're talking about um, the free devotionals that are available every single day on the Lion Share Leadership app. So you're going to want to download the app on your phone, and that way you can get um, a new devotion with Dave every single day. They're just a couple of minutes long, and every single one of them um, focuses on the character attributes of who God is. And Dave asks provocative questions, and he takes us into the scriptures. And so um, this emphasis on God and the goodness of God is um, is a part of that conversation. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about you know how we as creatures of comfort um, relate to a God who is comforter. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You are not alone. Do you believe me when I say that? You are not alone. The enemy wants you to believe that you are not only alone, all alone, but to make you feel bad about it. That's loneliness. And it's a lie. Jesus tells us that the enemy tells us lies to rob us of our joy, kill our hope, and destroy our lives. And so if you're experiencing loneliness today, let me say this, you're not alone. The enemy is using the weapon of loneliness against a lot of people right now. But here's the good news. God is present. God is present right now, and he's closer to you than your very next breath. God loves you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You were created for relationship with him. And that sense of loneliness that you have right now, well, that's an indication that your heart knows it. Loneliness is the spiritual indicator that real love, real companionship, real relationship, real life are all possible. And guess what? Jesus literally came to make that connection with you. Do you want to know more? Text the word LONELY to 877-933-2484. And I'll drop in on you to remind you that God is present and you're not alone. Text LONELY, L-O-N-E-L-Y, to 877-933-2484. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. Continuing our conversation with Dave Buring now, we are talking about Dave's free devotionals that are available on the Lion Share Leadership app. Um, if you want that link, just text me and I'll send it directly to you. Um, you know the number, 877-933-2484. All right, Dave, let's, um, let's address, you know, we are creatures of comfort, and there's no question about that, um, but we are made in the image of the God of all comfort. Can you talk with us or introduce us maybe to God as comforter? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's like there's, there's something that is very valuable to us about comfort, uh, you know, when there's pain, it's something that becomes important to us when there is disappointment to have others around us. Or Cheryl and I sometimes talk about environments that just kind of let you, you know, have that sense of kind of peace and comfort. Um, you know, I think a lot of us have uh, our our favorite restaurants to go to for comfort food, right? When things mm -hmm. just haven't gone well. And the Bible, like one of the places that I like to start this, because it's often a familiar passage for people, is in Psalm 23. And in verse four, it says, even though 
I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And and it's recognizing, you know, that the reality here is, is that he is with us. I think that's the core truth about comfort, is that he is with us. And David recognizes that, for you are with me. And then he gets into the you know, the tools of the trade of the shepherd, you know, the, the rod was the, it was like a long stick used to correct the sheep when they were go going where they weren't supposed to go or doing something they weren't supposed to do. And it would protect them when the wolves were looking around. And then there was the staff, which kind of had that curved top so he could reach and grab sheep, protect them. It, it fit perfectly around their necks. And when they were wandering, he could draw them close back to his heart and back to himself. And so I think David as a shepherd saw that kind of imagery related to comfort. I love the end of Psalm 23 where, you know, we're the, the core truth, um, obviously, that God is with us, never leaves us, never forsakes us, and pursues us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. Like I, mm. the idea that goodness and mercy follow me around also means mm. that God is pursuing me with his goodness and yeah. his mercy, which takes us back to our um, God is good conversation um, earlier, um, Dave. Let's unpack this a little bit further. Um, mm -hmm. We talk about we talk about comfort food. We talk about um, where we turn for comfort. Um, when we talk about the places where we feel most comfortable or the people we feel most comfortable with, mm -hmm. those are not always and necessarily um, God God blessed, God oriented, or God directed. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. about all of the ways we seek to satiate ourselves mm -hmm. or comfort ourselves in the culture today that are a departure from God as comforter. So this seems like another place where we can talk about the enemy and his tactics. Yeah, totally. So the way that, like when you start talking about this, where my head goes is, um, it, I learned as a young guy in my late teens and early twenties, I was taught that with every um, pain that we kind of encounter in our life, which could be a disappointment, somebody lets us down, hope deferred makes the heart sick, you know, whatever the case may be, that caused pain. It could be severe abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse. It's like we create within us kind of a, a bounce that swings to a pleasure. So the, the language I learned, learned was that, hey, when there's pain, there's often a pleasure swing. And I think that's the kinds of things that you're talking about right now and where, what do we do to alleviate pain? And oftentimes, you know, we've talked about in the past, it's kind of the sex, drugs, rock and roll. We've got, you know, these days uh, just diving into our phones and, you know, at the end of the week, it reminds us that you were on about 50 hours too much or we go to the mall and we just spend money because it makes me feel better to just get a new top or, you know, whatever the case may be on and on it goes food. Um, you know, we can become exercise, of course, should be a core part of our lives for health, but we can become excessive in it because it's my pleasure swing um, sports. I mean, you just name it. There's all kinds of things that could be there. And in the midst of pain, one of the disciplines that's important is to get into God's presence. Now, I'm a guy that believes that God throws us oxygen masks, you know, like I'm, I like to be the person when I'm with someone who is a little bit, who I love deeply, know them well, and they're going through a tough time. I'm the one that will be there with them in that moment, but I also be the one that will make them laugh, 
because I know it makes them laugh. And I know that's throwing them an oxygen mask. And by the end of our conversation, they will feel comforted by my friendship. Mm. Um, you know, so so there are the pleasure swings, which, you know, if they get out of biblical boundaries, they can cause bondage in our life. But I think there's also things where God, you know, uses things in life. Like, for example, um, sometimes it's nice for me just to kind of get into a wooded environment or, you know, on a beach is my favorite and just walk it. Just walk it. And and when things are a bit challenging or my mind feels fussed up or whatever the case may be, it, it brings peace. It brings comfort. And um, so I think it's just recognizing, are we going to another source first or are we coming to God first and recognizing maybe how he wants to bring comfort to us? Mm. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. And when we are troubled— yeah. We give the same comfort to others that God has given to us. I'm thinking there about Second yeah. Corinthians, one chapter one. four. Dave, that's so good. Um, could you um, lead us in a in a prayer um, on this topic that we might mm -hmm. turn to God for comfort and not maybe to um, the people with whom we feel most comfortable or comfort food or any other um, lesser mm -hmm. God? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Jesus, thank you for how much you love us and thank you that you understand us. Like you know the things that press our buttons, the things that bring us down, the things that push us to a place where we are actually functioning in a ways, way that's opposed to you and your ways. And so Lord, I just would ask for those particularly today that are listening who need to know comfort. They're family is falling apart, that they're wondering if they'll have a job next week, all those kinds of things that we face in this life. Lord, would you show them your heart for them? Would you move on their behalf this day that they'll be able to point to that and just go, oh, oh, I see that God did that for me today. And Lord, I just would pray that you would personalize this in such a way that it would minister to people in a very personal way this day. Lord, we love you. And we invite you in to this area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Dave, thank you as always so much. You guys can connect with Dave Buring at lionshare.org. The free devotionals are available every single day on the Lionshare Leadership app. And if you want that link, um, I'm happy to send it to you on the text line. Just shoot me a text, 877-933-2484. On the text line this morning, lots of folks checking in. So thank you so much. Um, just all kinds of conversations going on here today. Uh, Jim and Simsbury checking in. Uh, Simsbury, Connecticut, just, you know, checking in to let me know that his coffee's really good this morning. Mm -hmm. So it's great. Um, Bob Hagen, who lives in the Twin Cities, texts me at the end of the week saying, have a great weekend. And this morning saying, have a great week, which led me to wonder, Bob, what um what makes for a great weekend? How was your weekend great? And what would make this week great? So think about that for just a second. Um, you know, somebody says, hey, you know, have a great week. What would make this a great week for you? What would make it a great week? What would make the week great? Um, everybody's answer to that question is probably a little bit different. I think my week, I think this particular coming week, this week, this week would be great if I would actually find myself faithful to follow through on commitments that I made this weekend. If at the end of this week, I am able to say, you know what? I did the things that I committed to do. That for me um, 
You can be you could be praying for that. You could be praying that Carmen have a great week. Help her to actually follow through on the commitments that she made to you this past weekend. And this past weekend was great because I had the privilege of spending it um, with some other Christian women in just a couple of days of solitude, silence, and stillness. And we could frankly just spend every waking hour that we have together (laughs) talking about solitude, silence, and stillness. Um, Yeah, so I had a great weekend because it was very quiet and very still. Um, And that was a real gift. And I made some commitments to the Lord over the weekend. And this will be a great week if I am able to keep those. That's how I will. um, Yeah. So you could seek the Lord in me, uh, with me in that. Our friend Adam Carrington is going to join us next. We are going to survey some things uh, at the intersection of, you know, faith and thinking and living faithfully in the reality of culture today. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Our friend and brother Adam Carrington is uh, is joining us now. Um, you can find Adam at uh, on Twitter, uh, formerly uh, I guess it's X, formerly known as Twitter. Where I don't know, he still tweets even though it's X. Carrington AM. You can also find him as one of the authors at the World News Group, WNG.org, or of course at Hillsdale College. Adam, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? I'm well. I am well. I am well. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Glad Good. to be on the air with you. What makes uh, what makes a week or a weekend great, and what would make this week great for you? <laughs> uh, that's a weekend and week. Um, I think weekend, if I was able to uh, catch up both on things that I didn't get done throughout the week and also get a little bit of uh, rest to to worship on Sunday. So I think that's, I guess, the most important thing of the weekend is is worshiping with fellow believers. And then the week, I think, uh, if I'm able to feel like I did something to uh, help others in the classroom and at home, I think if I felt like I did something decent there, then then, then it's been an okay week. All right, well, let's go ahead and make it a great week here on Monday morning. Um, I am looking at a piece posted at World News Group. Learning from Luther in our education wars, the great reformer called for both parents and political communities to share teaching obligations. So, Adam, um, what is education? Who should be educating our children? And how should we be doing it hand in hand with one another? Yeah, and and I... I know that there's been an ongoing debate about this that has only ratcheted up in intensity over the last couple of years. And I thought that um, there was a letter that Martin Luther, the German reformer, wrote to uh, the nobles of towns in Germany exactly 500 years ago this year um, and making a case about education. And I thought that it was very much the idea showed the idea that as much as things change they've also stayed the same so mm-hmm. um i he was articulating that our education needs to not be merely about uh he says filling our bellies meaning only about i think in our common uh terms today not only about getting a job 
are not only about trying to make enough money to get this or that commodity, even though it absolutely matters that you're able to have a job that you can support yourself and, and those around you, but um, that there's more to education. And he really pushed that it matters that we learn what it means to be um, really three things, good human beings to the degree God uh, uh, can work in us that uh, grace, uh, good citizens, because God's placed us in the political context in which we're in, whether it's uh, 16th century Germany or 21st century America. And then ultimately, that all knowledge is really pointing us toward the God who created the mind and who created all that the mind perceives. And that um, he says, because of that interlocking human being, citizen of earth and citizen of heaven, um, it is really the job of certainly families to be uh, uh, stewarding children's education, but it's also an obligation of the state uh, to make sure that especially where parents can't do the job um, because of uh, lack of funds or you know other things that that an education is provided. And that uh, I think one thing he pointed out that I thought was very helpful today is, uh, you know, a lot of parents have taken control of their kids' education to homeschool or do other things. But to realize sometimes that's something that uh, really only people with a certain amount of means of both time and money can do. And that we need to be thinking very hard about how we can help those who are not in that situation. They don't have the time or money to be there, the primary teacher of their children. You know, how can we help them get an education as well uh, and, and do all again for the good of human beings, but also the glory of God? And I thought he really was helpful in bringing some of those things out and showing that they've been perpetual questions we've been asking for for at least several hundred years. Yeah. And you can't teach what you don't know. Um, I think that's difficult as well. Um in the in the conversation about who should be educating our children and how should they be educated today, recognizing that the world that we're preparing our children to um, live and lead and serve in the midst of is a world that's vastly different than the one in which we learned um, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And that doesn't mean that uh, a classical education isn't important, because I believe that it is. Um, but there are things that I would absolutely not be able to teach a child today because I did not learn them. They weren't even they weren't even things around to be learned. I couldn't teach coding. I just that just wouldn't that wouldn't happen. And so, um, you know, as a child's interests are identified and their and their capacities and um, and the things that they're really interested in, you know, helping them find people who are going to faithfully educate them um, in those is important or allowing um, them to attend public school and then really helping them evaluate the worldview um, that they're immersed in when they're there. I just think all of those things are really important. I particularly appreciated um, this, this, uh, this paragraph and what you say in it. On a political side, Luther's call built on a broader political theology. First of all, I want you to talk about what does that mean? What is a political theology? Um, and then you say in a, in a parallel to his parental um, admonishments, Luther exhorts magistrates or city leaders not to see the welfare of a city as involving only gathering great treasures and providing solid walls, beautiful buildings, and a godly supply, a goodly supply, sorry, goodly supply of guns and armor. 
The goals of politics do not consist merely in security, economic prosperity, and grand public works. Um, instead, a city's best and highest welfare, again, we're back to a Luther comment here, um, safety and strength consist in it having many able, learned, wise, honorable, and well-bred citizens. The state has an obligation and an interest in soul cultivation. Um, this is about the cultivation of civic virtue and um, citizens who glorify God. What is a political theology, and what does that look like in sort of regular walking around um, citizenship today? Yes, uh, uh, yeah, it's not. It's a phrase that's starting to make a bit of a comeback in in Christian discussions, and uh, it, it's it's the idea that a lot of people talk about in in academic disciplines about political philosophy which is really just merely the study of politics from the perspective of what can the human mind know naturally about justice about rule about how to live a a good life together under under decent laws uh political theology says that there's actually a theological aspect to it but there's uh, uh there's a place where scripture can speak to us about what it means to live in a political community together. And I think where that comes out is for regular citizens to be studying the scriptures and seeing how it portrays rulers. Um, David, when he was a good ruler, what did David do when he was not being a good ruler? Uh, why was Solomon uh, such a wise ruler at the beginning of his rule and how did he fall away? looking at laws in the Bible and seeing either where they apply to us today or if just they're a wise example of a, of a different political community. And, and that through that, we can get um, how it is that God's um, declaration that we are made in his image, uh, his call for us to be just to each other, to us especially to give um, fair uh, 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 justice to the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan. Um, that you know, political theology really gives us tools through Scripture to see how God has really fashioned politics for our good and for His glory in a way that other ways of approaching politics may undervalue or not at least push to the degree they need to. So when you're thinking about those questions, you're really doing political theology, even if it's, you know, uh, the question of how should our curriculum at school educate our children or, or what should we do at the, uh, to what pro-life laws need to help family uh, crisis pregnancy centers. That ultimately is engaging in political theology and looking at what the Bible has to bring to bear on these uh, these life uh, important questions of how to be a citizen in this time and place. We're going to continue our conversation with Adam Carrington here in just a moment. Have you ever heard the phrase "America First? What does that mean? Um, how, as Christians, might we um, roll roll that phrase around in our hearts and minds? Um, what does it mean to prioritize American interests when it comes to the politics of what's going on in the world um, and not be isolationist um, as people who actually care about others. We're going to have Adam help us understand that next. And what is impeachment? Mm -hmm. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, 
reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Hey, I just want to say to those of you on the prayer, um, on the text line, I just about called it the prayer line. Uh, yeah, for those of you asking, would I add you to my prayer list? Yes, both my personal prayer list and our Faith Radio prayer list. Jessica, I'm looking at you when I'm saying that. I don't have time right now to fully respond to um, long text messages, but I want you to hear me say, yes, absolutely, I see you. I'm adding you to my prayer list now. Um, Andrew, I see you. I see um, how we could be praying for you to make this week a great week. Kim, Deborah, Patrice, um, on and on and on. So I see you. I will, I promise, get back to you. Um, right now, we're going to continue our conversation with our friend Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, um, I want to touch on a couple of things. One, help us have maybe a right or a righteous understanding of the phrase America first. And then I would really appreciate you um, helping us understand, you know, like what what is impeachment? We're hearing a lot about it in the um, in the cultural conversations today in the United States of America. And so can you just touch on those two things, America first and impeachment? Right. And so the phrase America first has become popular um, among especially more politically conservative uh, especially those who uh, su- uh, are particularly fervent supporters of President Trump, although it's <clears throat> broader than just his supporters, and it uh, at its uh, and and at its best, I think it's merely recognizing that political communities have a, a different levels of responsibility, and people can understand this in their individual lives that. You have a particular responsibility to your family or to those, your neighbors or to those closest to you uh, to care for them, to do what's best for them, to to fulfill their good, and that you just have limited capacity to do good and you need to prioritize that as best you can because you're fallible and finite. Uh, Political communities are like that as well, and that we have a particular responsibility to those who are American citizens or live in the United States. Um, and that at times we do have to make that priority and maybe some tough choices. But that doesn't mean that we, and I think this is where that 
a philosophy can be can be negative or that philosophy can get bad is if you then turn everyone else in the world into either enemies or people to ignore. And I think as Christians, we can't do that. Yes, we're American citizens, but we also have brothers and sisters in Christ, and that unity is going to be deeper and longer lasting than any earthly political citizenship across the world. And so we should be concerned about the um, uh, the, the persecution that's going on in Nigeria right now of Christians or uh, China or fill in other places. And uh, we need to be thinking as Americans, how do we fulfill our political priorities here to help those that, that need help in the United States, but also how can we also still be engaged in the world in a way that recognizes the limited capacities, but also the real responsibilities we have? And I think that would be a healthier than some of the discussions we've been having about this question that either becomes a kind of uh, self-centered isolationism or its rejection almost says that we ignore our neighbors with a fixation on uh, people across the ocean when we could be doing so much good here as well. I think there has to be a balance. Uh, with impeachment, it's interesting. We obviously had several episodes of this with President Trump when he was in office. The Republicans now are uh, moving to impeach um, Secretary Mayorkas. He's the uh, uh, Homeland Security Department Secretary, arguing that he has failed to enforce immigration laws at the southern border of the United States. And I think a big thing that's going to be part of this is, yes, a lot of people are frustrated about our immigration laws uh, and actually from both sides of the aisle, they are for different reasons. Um, there's uh, looks like this border deal that was just brokered and published probably isn't going anywhere, which will probably only further those frustrations. But uh, I think the question with Mayorkas and the question with impeachment is what's our standard for when we um, do this very, uh, 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 intense, very serious form of punishment. And I think if if Republicans are going to try to prove that Mayorkas um, violated laws, that's going to be hard. Um, it's not that he wasn't enforcing immigration laws at all. He just wasn't as much as Republicans wanted or maybe as much as the laws called for. But there are some real questions as to if a government official on a very serious issue is not fully uh, applying and executing the law, what's the recourse to try to course correct on that? And uh, impeachment is a very big response to that. I'm not sure if it's the proper one here, but it's going to be a real question about how do you hold elected officials accountable if you believe, or not, or actually cabinet officials accountable if you believe they haven't been fully enacting the laws as written. Everybody who um, works for what we might think of as the administrative state, everybody who works um, in the executive branch, everyone works, in, everyone who works in quote unquote law enforcement engages at every level in something called prosecutorial discretion. Every police officer uses his discretion about who to pull over that is driving over the speed limit. And so I just want you to think for a moment if every officer of the law fully enforced every law to its legal limit, um, you and I would always be driving at least 
one mile per hour below the speed limit because we would know if we ever approached um, the speed limit, if we ever went over it by one mile per hour, um, then we were going to we would be prosecuted to the to the fullness of the letter of the law. So there's a letter of the law conversation going on here and a conversation about prosecutorial discretion. If you've ever been pulled over and you've only gotten a warning, um, if you've ever been um, if you've ever like if you've ever done something that is patented patently illegal and you have not been prosecuted for it, should the person who failed to prosecute you for that be impeached? And that's that is going to be the conversation that we have to have in relationship to not only which laws are enforced, but to what extent are the laws that we have enforced? And is there a difference between um, the the letter and the spirit of the law? Um, and I recognize that the southern border is um, it's a humanitarian disaster and it's a national security disaster as well. And so when um, uh, who's coming up later to talk with us, Elizabeth Newman, when she's here, we're going to we're going to touch on at least the broad framework of um, the immigration bill that's going to be taken up at least by the Senate, if not by the House. So all of that coming up uh, later this morning as well. Adam, um, thank you so much. These are topics we will very likely circle back around to. Um, and so thank you for helping us begin to discuss them today. Absolutely. Thanks, as always, for having me on. Being with you is in itself an education. So we appreciate that. All right. That's um, all the time we've got here in the first hour of Mornings with Carmen. But you know what? <laughs> that means there's an hour two. Hour two of Mornings with Carmen is coming up next. Our friend Elizabeth Newman is going to join us. We're going to talk about some global headlines. I'm going to give you some really great good news out of Connecticut and New York. And then we're going to talk about what it means to come to the table together as Christians of uh, of every tribe and nation, of Christians of every variety. What would it look like to come together at a table coalition? Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.